Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll begin reading this morning in verse 4, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. We started this passage last week, and we will conclude uh, chapter 1 this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, in speaking of the Son, it says, Having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, how it does so clearly teach and display to us the glory of Christ above all things. That, Lord, there is no other Savior and there is no other need for us to look for anyone else, because you have provided the perfect Savior, Lord, the one who has perfectly revealed to us, Lord, your will, Lord, who you are, so that we might come to know you and that we might have eternal life through the forgiveness of sins in him. So, Lord, teach us today that we might cling to Christ more closely, Lord, that we would never depart from him, but, Lord, that we would love him more and more each and every day. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we began this passage last week where the apostle is displaying the glory of Christ by contrasting him to the angels. Right? He stated that Jesus Christ is much better than the angels because he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Right? The Father addresses Jesus Christ in a way that he cannot address any created being, even the holy angels who are clothed with such glory and power, even they cannot be called by the name that the Father calls Jesus in that he addresses him as his son. And this denotes the deity of Christ. It shows that he alone has this unique relationship with the Father, that he has the same nature as the Father. God cannot address any angel as his son. He cannot address any mere man as his son in this way because only one who possesses divinity, a divine nature, can be addressed like this by the Father. Now this he has proven by quoting several Old Testament passages. First he began by quoting Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 where God addressed Christ as his son saying, you are my son, today I have begotten you and I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Right, that Jesus is called Son of God shows that he was more than a man. He was not merely a man, though he was man, he was God in human flesh. He was the incarnate Son of God. 
He then expanded this superiority further still by showing the command where God the Father commands His angels to worship Jesus Christ. In Psalm 97, 7, the Father says to the angels, let all the angels of God worship Him. It is impossible that God the Father would command His holy angels to worship any created being, for this would be idolatry. Yet this command is legitimate because Jesus Christ possesses deity, and thus He is a fitting object of the angels' worship. Then we concluded last week with a quote from Psalm 104, verse 4, where the prophet shows the function and role of the angels. If the angels are inferior to Jesus Christ, then what is their role? Right, what is their purpose? And he said, God makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Angels are servants of God, equipped by God to carry out his will on the earth. And whatever they need to accomplish the will of God, what God sends them to do, sometimes as wind, sometimes as flames of fire, God gives to his holy angels all that they need to carry out his perfect will. And this is where we concluded last week. So today, We'll pick up in verse 8 and see the apostle continuing to bring forth evidence from the Old Testament to support his argument that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Here he quotes from Psalm 45, which was our scripture reading this morning. And in this passage, God the Father is addressing his Son, who is also the King, right? The Son is the King. And it is impossible that this Psalm could refer to anyone other than Jesus Christ. Because the King that is sitting on the throne is addressed by God the Father as God himself. Right When it says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. These are the words of God the Father speaking to God the Son, as recorded by the holy prophet of God. The prophet is writing down a conversation, a dialogue between the Father and the Son. And God the Father addresses Jesus Christ as God. When he says, your throne, O God. The apostle then rightly applies this passage to Jesus Christ, extolling the greatness of his kingdom. Now notice in what he quotes. He says, your throne, O God. Here, speaking of the kingdom of Christ, the throne being the seat of his power and represents the kingdom itself. The throne is where the king rules from and denotes both his power and his glory. He says that your throne is forever and ever. The kingdom of Christ, in contrast to the kingdom of David or the kingdom of Solomon, is forever and ever. Their kingdoms were temporary. Their kingdoms were small figures of the kingdom of Christ. But David did not have an eternal kingdom, nor did Solomon, nor did any other of David's heirs. But only this one heir of David, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. This in contrast to the frail, feeble kingdoms of this earth. Right, Even the greatest of kingdoms in this world only last for a short amount of time. And then they soon fall into ruin, but not his kingdom. It will never come to an end. It will never fail. Neither from decay from within or from opposition from without. 
His kingdom will not fail because He rules His kingdom in righteousness. Therefore, it will not decay from within. And no one can overpower Him. Therefore, it will not fall from any outside force, from any opposition to Him. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. says this concerning the kingdom of Christ. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, says, For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end of the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. There, his government, the increase of it, will never end. He will sit on the throne of David forever and ever, from this time forth and forevermore. This is the extent of the kingdom of Christ. It will never come to an end. Also in Daniel chapter 7, The prophet Daniel also predicts this concerning the kingdom of Christ. And again, it's impossible that these passages could refer to any of David's descendants other than Christ. No way. No way. Daniel chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14. Daniel 7 verse 13 says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His kingdom will never pass away. It will never be destroyed. And how could this refer to anyone other than Jesus Christ? Only he has received this eternal kingdom. Next, he says, this kingdom is defined in this way. The righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Right? The administration of his rule is done in perfect righteousness. He upholds it with justice. Jesus never fails to enact his government, the way he administrates his kingdom, he never fails to do it in righteousness. He always does it perfectly according to the word of God. He never promotes or issues some worthless or evil decree. His laws are holy, just, and true. The laws of his kingdom are righteous laws. The way that Jesus rules over his kingdom is in perfect conformity to his holy will. Right, both in relation to the elect and in relation to the reprobate. Right, for the elect, he converts them. He pardons them. He sanctifies them. He preserves them so that they are taken into eternal glory. He grants to his chosen ones his grace and mercy. He ordains for them trials and tribulation, for their testing, for their purification in this present life. And whatever is necessary to accomplish and promote the salvation of his people, Jesus perfectly orchestrates this on their behalf in righteousness. Then also for the reprobate. He hardens them. 
He prepares them for the day of judgment. Ultimately, he brings about their eternal ruin and destruction. He will destroy all of his enemies. And when he does this, he is free from any charge of evil. No one can say and blame Jesus for hardening him. No one can say that this isn't fair or right for them to be cast into the lake of fire. He accomplishes both of these things in perfect righteousness. The salvation of his people and the destruction of his enemies, both done in justice. 2 Peter 2 verse 9 says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. The Lord knows how to do both of these things. He knows how to rescue his people, and this he does in righteousness, and he knows how to keep the ungodly under punishment until the day of judgment. And this he also does and executes in perfect righteousness. Notice next. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Here, this shows why Jesus never wavers in the way that he administers his government, in the way that he rules over his kingdom. The consistent, never-changing heart of Christ. It is impossible for him to commit any sin. It is impossible for him to make any error in the way that he rules over his kingdom. Because he is always guided by this twofold principle. Love for righteousness and utter hatred for lawlessness. Because he loves righteousness, then he always promotes what is in accordance to God's law. And because he hates lawlessness... He will destroy anything that is contrary to the law of God. This is a far cry from the kingdoms of this world. Right? Many times in this life, the very laws of the land are in and of themselves evil and oppressive. And then at other times, even if the laws are good, the way that they are administered is unjust or partial or wicked. And then even if there is a moment where just laws are being enforced, many men do not do it because of love of righteousness, but for some self-interest. But none of these abuses in terms of government, in terms of administration, none of these can be applied to Christ because he is free from any corruption, free from any sin because he loves righteousness and he hates lawlessness. And he is ever guided by this, these desires. As it says in Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Righteousness and justice. His throne is established on righteousness and justice. Now, this very truth confounds the expectation of so many men. Because many men today believe that they will waltz right into the kingdom of Christ, but they do not consider that his kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. And they're not concerned about righteousness at all. All they want is to go have a good time for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth. But they're not concerned about righteousness as evidence in the way that they live. They're not thinking about it. They're not pursuing a godly life. But only the righteous can dwell with Christ in his kingdom. The unrighteous cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It says such in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 to 11... It says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the spirit of our God. You cannot practice these sins and go to heaven and enter into the kingdom of God. Yes, you can be a repentant person who overcomes these sins and enter the kingdom of God, but you cannot practice these sins and entertain a notion and an idea that you will enter into the kingdom of God with no desire to repent of your sin, to detest your sin, to hate your sin, and to overcome that sin. Also, it says in Revelation 21, Revelation chapter 21, verse 22, says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, for us, we have to consider the fact that by nature, this would exclude all of us. 1 Corinthians 6, Revelation 21. By nature, we would all be excluded from the kingdom of Christ because his kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. And by nature, we are anything but righteous, but rather we are wholly unrighteous and all of our righteous deeds are filthy garments in the sight of God. And this is why a man must be born again. You must be born again to enter into the kingdom of Christ. You must be born of the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ who washes us clean of our sin. The spirit of Christ who sanctifies a man so that he is ultimately, in the end, when he enters into the kingdom of Christ, he will purify us from all sin. This begins at our conversion and it progresses in our life through our sanctification, though it is never perfect and complete in this life. But then when we enter into the life to come, then we will be made perfect. We will be completely purged and purified of our sin. And it is only those who desire this, who desire to be purified from all unrighteousness by the blood of Christ, only they will be able to enter his kingdom. True conversion, true salvation is necessary. Not fake Christianity and not easy believism, but it must be true salvation. This is what is necessary and we must be washed by the blood of Christ. And if that is true, it will manifest itself in the way that we live now. And then it will be perfected in the life to come. Next, he says, back to Hebrews chapter 1. He says, Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. The result of the righteous rule of Christ is that the Father has anointed the Son with the oil of gladness above his companions. Here, the oil of gladness being a symbol, a representation of the power of the Spirit of God, that God's Holy Spirit was upon Jesus Christ above any of his companions, above the prophets, above the apostles, above any of his brothers or any of his people. Yes, he gives the Spirit to all of them, 
But none of them had the Spirit the way that he did. He had it in a greater way. The oil of gladness was upon him in a way that was far superior to any other prophets or any other man, any before him or any who would come after him. The anointing of the Spirit on the person of Jesus Christ was unique to him in the magnitude of it. It says such in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 The prophet Isaiah is predicting this concerning the Son. And there are many people today who would say that the Holy Spirit was not known in the Old Testament or taught in the Old Testament. But Isaiah 61 says it is. It says he was taught. Isaiah 61 verse 1. Here also the Trinity is taught in these verses as well because we have all three persons of the Trinity present. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. There the spirit of the Lord rested upon Christ. Rested upon Christ. And then as a result of his anointing, he gives it to us. It runs over into us as well. And then we receive his spirit through faith in Christ. Also in Acts 10.38, it says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. There, he is testifying to the people. They know this to be true. They know what was true of Jesus of Nazareth. They know that God anointed him with the Holy Spirit. And this should be a sign and evidence to them that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the promised Christ, the one that was predicted by the prophets. Now, what he said here in quoting from Psalm 45, how could this be applied to any angel? How could what he said be true of any angel? The passage is clearly teaching the divine nature of Jesus Christ. And we who have put our hope in him, we should draw great hope and comfort from this passage. It should cause us to rejoice to see by faith the kingdom of Christ. Because if Christ is our king, right? if we belong to him, then this is what he possesses. This is what he has even right now. This is the kingdom that he will grant to us as well. He will grant to us this kingdom and we will share with him in it. All power has been committed to him. All things have been given into his hand. He is ruling and reigning in righteousness for the benefit of his people. So what is there to make us afraid? Why should we fear men? Why should we fear the world, the flesh, and the devil, seeing that our king is sitting on his throne and his scepter is a scepter of righteousness and he loves righteousness and he hates lawlessness 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. 10 to 12, the next quotation. says, And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Here, he quotes again from the Old Testament, another psalm, Psalm 102, where the Father is addressing the Son and referring to Him as Lord. And in this context, this title cannot be ascribed to anyone else other than one who possesses a divine nature that is equal to the Father. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And in Exodus 20, verse 7, we are told, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, to address someone as Lord in this way would be to take His name in vain. And yet God is not doing that. So this is not comparable to Sarah. When Sarah called Abraham, she addressed him as her Lord. But in that context, Sarah is referring to his authority. She's not saying that Abraham is her God or that Abraham has a divine nature. But here in this context, the way this title of Lord is being used and then ascribing to this person who is addressed as Lord the very works of creation, it can only be true of God, only of one who has a divine nature. So here, Lord clearly means God. It clearly means divinity, and God the Father would not be addressing any created being with this title because he himself would be guilty of giving honor and glory to a creature that is only due to God, and he himself would be taking his own name in vain. And is it possible for God to do that? No, of course not. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. God will not take his own name in vain. He's not doing this in this context because he's applying it to Jesus Christ. And he is indeed God in human flesh. He possesses the same divine nature as the Father, so he can rightly be addressed as Lord. And here, the contrast is between the person of Christ and creation. He's comparing and contrasting Christ and creation in two ways. First, Jesus laid the foundation of the earth, And the heavens are the works of his hands. The world and everything in the world came into existence through Jesus Christ. He is the creator of the world and everything in it. And the heavens, everything was created by the Son. It says such in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There, all things came into being through Him. Apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. This is the same as what's being said in Psalm 102. He created the world, everything in it. He laid the foundation. He created the heavens. 
He did this because he existed before the world existed. Before the creation, Jesus Christ existed eternally with God the Father. And this is how the world was made through him. Therefore, if the world was made through him, he himself cannot be dependent on the creation or any aspect of creation for his life. He does not depend on anyone or anything, but rather we all depend upon him. He gave us life and our life is dependent on Christ. Secondly, he shows the contrast between Jesus. Not only did Jesus create the world, the heavens and the earth, but secondly, the earth and the heavens created by Jesus will perish, but he will endure forever. He is the creator of the present world, and he is also the one that will bring this present heaven and earth to an abrupt end. He made it, and he will one day destroy it. He will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but he will remain the same, and his years will never come to an end. Now, this manifests greatly the superiority of Christ over all creation, including the angels and including feeble man, including you and me. For in comparison to many aspects of creation, we are feeble, right? We are frail. We are short. We are temporary compared to the earth, compared to the sun, to the moon, and to the stars. Even in comparison to some living beings, they have greater life than we do. There are some trees that will live longer than you and me that are hundreds of years old. And yet our lives are what? 70 or by reason of strength, 80 years old. And yet we come and go, but what happens to the earth? Well, it says in Genesis 8:22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Doesn't the world continue in an unending progression, generation after generation after generation after generation. The sun, the moon, the stars, this is the same sun, moon, and stars that Abraham observed, that he saw so many thousands of years ago, yet he has come and gone, and one day we will come and go, and these things will remain. Creation continues on year after year, while the generations of man pass in and out of existence in their life on this earth. But what about Jesus Christ? How does he compare to the heavens and earth? Well, in relationship to Christ, even the most enduring aspects of creation are nothing to him. Even they are temporary to him. They are short-lived to him. He existed before the world. He brought the world into existence, and then he's going to destroy it all one day, and they will cease to be. He existed before them, and he will exist after them. Because he created them, he will roll them up and they will cease to be. But his years will never come to an end. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 speaks of this coming day of destruction of the present heavens and earth. 2 Peter 3 and verse 3 says, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. 
through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. So there, the present world, this heaven and earth that we are currently living in and seeing, is going to be destroyed by Christ. He will roll it up, and it will all come to an end. And there will be a creation of a new heavens and a new earth, which goes back to our previous passage in Psalm 45, where righteousness dwells. Because who is the king of that new heavens and new earth? Jesus Christ. And the scepter of his kingdom is the scepter of righteousness. All of this will be accomplished by Jesus Christ. These are things that can only be true of God. So when the Father is attributing these works to the Son, it is a clear testimony of his deity and his superiority to the angels and to all of creation. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Here he brings forward another witness from the Old Testament scriptures concerning the Christ. And he's quoting from Psalm 110 verse 1, where the prophet David is recording another dialogue, another conversation between God the Father and God the Son. After the Son finishes His work of redemption and after He ascends into heaven in between His first and His second coming. God the Father calls on His Son, the Christ, to sit at His right hand until all of His enemies are made a footstool for His feet. Until His second coming. Now this is clearly a messianic psalm. And there's no way on earth that Psalm 110 could refer to David could refer to Solomon, could refer to Hezekiah, could refer to Josiah, could refer to any one of the others of David's descendants. Only can be applied to Christ. Only he is the descendant of David who is both fully God and fully man. And this passage was also interpreted even by unbelieving Jews as being messianic. The Jews knew that this passage was about the Christ. And this is the consistent interpretation even of the Jews, even during the time of Christ. They knew that this psalm was referring to the coming Messiah. Let's read Psalm 110, and then we'll see how Jesus uses this passage to silence and confound his enemies. Psalm 110, verse 1. Says The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, Jesus quotes this passage. Because his opponents are incredulous that Jesus is claiming deity. They know that he's claiming to be the son of God that he's making God his father, that he's claiming equality with God. So he brings forward this passage to silence them from the scriptures. Matthew twenty-two forty-one. 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day ask him any other question. How can David call his son his Lord? And Jesus shows them that he's doing this in the spirit. He's doing it in the spirit, meaning if he's doing it in the spirit, he can't be lying. He can't be mistaken. He can't be out of his mind. He can't be speaking irrationally or uh, in in this type of way. But rather, he's speaking truthfully. So how can it be? How can it be that his son is his Lord? Well, only if his son is also his God. And this is the truth. Isn't Jesus bringing forward both his full humanity and his full deity? Both of these things are being taught here in Psalm 110. According to his flesh... Jesus is the son of David, but according to his divinity, he is the Lord of David. Both of these things are true. And here, the Lord, the Father, is addressing David's Lord, or he says, my Lord, who is the Son. And we know from Romans chapter 10 that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is what David knows. This is what David recognizes that his son, the Messiah, the Christ, that he understands God has made this promise to him, like we read last week from 2 Samuel chapter 7, that his descendant will sit on his throne forever. This descendant is the Christ, that that descendant of his, according to the flesh, is also, according to his divine nature, his own Lord and his Savior. And here, in Psalm 110.1, the Father is telling the Son to sit at his right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, this position at the right hand cannot be occupied by any creature. There's no way that the Father would invite some created being to this position of highest honor, to sit there at his right hand. Only one with a divine nature could occupy this position. And that is where Jesus is now. And he can take up that position because he is fully God and fully man. He is at God's right hand even now 
interceding for us. And will the Father deny his Son? It is impossible that God the Father would not give to his Son Christ whatever he desires. And what does Jesus desire in relationship to his church, in relationship to his elect, to his sheep, to his people? Does he not desire our full and final salvation? So will the Father deny his Son this? Of course not. He will give him whatever he desires because his desires are always good. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And so he reigns currently to bring this about as the God of his people until he has brought all of his elect into the fold. And then when that is done, his enemies will be destroyed. His enemies and our enemies are one and the same. And not one of them will escape from Christ. All of his enemies and all of our enemies, whether spiritual, whether visible and physical, it doesn't matter. All of them will be made a footstool for his feet. And then he will dwell for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth with his people. And there will be no sin there. There will be no death there. There will be no sadness, no sorrow, no hardships, no devil, no tormentors, no persecutors, no one to mock and to ridicule, but only eternal bliss, eternal peace, eternal joy and happiness with our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what we have to see. We have to see it now by faith, by faith in the word of God. By faith, we must see Christ ascended to the right hand of God the Father. By faith, we must see him now ruling in the midst of his enemies. By faith, we must see him working all things together for our good. And everything that happens in this world and in your life and in my life, whether for good or for evil, it is under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Christ. Everything necessary to bring this world into subjection to Christ has been accomplished. This is why he's sitting, because there's nothing left to be done. Everything necessary has been accomplished. There is nothing left to be done. It's simply a matter of time. When the Father gives to his Son the command to go and gather his people to himself and go and destroy the rest of your enemies, and he will do it. He will do it. Now, again, how could any mere man possess and occupy this position of honor? How could any angel occupy and possess this position of honor? It is impossible. Only the Son of God can have this position of highest honor. And these are the words of God the Father to His Son, Jesus Christ, clearly showing that He is greater than any angelic being. And it is impossible that God would say these things to an angel. So then, what about the angels? He concludes the chapter with another statement concerning the role and purpose of angels. Verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? The angels are ministering spirits. They are God's ministers whom he uses to accomplish his will. God dispatches his angels for the sake of his elect. They render service for those who will inherit salvation. Now that should be a comfort to us as well. Not only is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over us in perfect righteousness, but also he has at his disposal 
myriads upon myriads of holy angels who are very powerful, and he sends them from the Father to the earth to give help to who? To help us, to render service to those who will inherit salvation. And we can reduce their function on earth to two primary tasks. First, to bring the blessing of God and the protection of God to his people. And then secondly, to destroy the enemies of God. This is what they do. They protect the righteous and they execute God's vengeance and his punishments upon the wicked. An example of this, 2 Chronicles 32. So it's all all happening in one spot, right? So we can go there and see both of these things being accomplished. 2 Chronicles 32, verses 20 to 23. But Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this and cried out to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land. And when he had entered the temple of his God, some of his own children killed him there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others, and guided them on every side. Here, the angel comes. He renders service to Hezekiah, to Isaiah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem by bringing the judgment of God upon the wicked king of the Assyrians and upon his army, destroying them in a single night. This is what the angels do. Now, should we worship them because of this? No, they are not to be the objects of our worship. We should not be preoccupied with angels, but rather they exist to worship and serve Christ. Christ is the focus of their existence. So who should be the focus of ours? Who should be the focus of our worship, of our thoughts, of our prayers, of our hope, of our faith? Only the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Only he should be the focus. And we should be like the angels. We should follow the example of the holy angels. Right? The greatest glory that any creature can possess is to serve and honor his creator. So if we want to think about the angels, then this is what we should think about concerning the angels. They exist to serve Christ and to bring him glory. And they stand always ready and willing to do his will. Well, isn't that the way we should be? Don't we exist? to bring him glory, to serve him? And shouldn't we be always ready and eager to do the will of Christ? This is the way that we should live as well. So let us strive then, not to worship anyone or anything, not even an angel, but only to worship Christ alone and to only believe in him and to live our lives for his glory, to serve and worship Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, which so clearly teaches us, Lord, concerning the superiority of Christ. Lord, that indeed you have given him a name that is above every name. And we know that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to your glory. Lord, we pray that even now in this life, Lord, that we would give willing 
joyful submission to Christ. That we would bow our knee before Him. Lord, that we would not worship and serve any idols. Lord, we would not worship and serve any angels or any other man. Lord, that we certainly would not worship and serve our own sin or the flesh or the devil. But rather, Lord, that we would have as the goal of our life to worship and serve Christ, to declare His praise, Lord, to bring Him glory and honor in all things. And so, Father, we pray that we would be preoccupied with Him, Lord, that He would be on our thoughts, that He would be on our mind, that He would be the focus of our thoughts each and every day. So, Lord, we pray that You continue to build us up in our faith and that You would give us even more confidence, Lord, greater assurance of the person and work of Christ, of His greatness, Lord, of His majesty and His glory. And Lord, help us even now by faith, Lord, to behold these these realities, Lord, that are invisible to us. Lord, these spiritual truths, Lord, that we do not yet see with our own eyes. But Lord, we pray that with the eyes of faith, that we might behold even now our Lord Jesus Christ sitting at your right hand, ruling in the midst of his enemies, waiting until the day that all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Lord, give us comfort and hope as well, knowing that his kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness and that he cannot make any mistakes. Lord, he can never err in the way that he rules over his church so that whatever he brings upon us by way of his providence, it is for our good and for his glory. Lord, in order to sanctify us. So, Father, we pray that it would be our comfort and hope, especially in our afflictions and in our sufferings. Lord, that we would see that you are concerned with our salvation, with our sanctification, with our purification. And that, Lord, we would strive, Lord, to enter into this kingdom. Lord, as well, we pray that you keep us from delusions and, Lord, false ideas that we can enter into the kingdom of Christ without being clothed with his righteousness. And, Lord, as well, that we can be clothed with his righteousness in this life without it manifesting itself in good deeds. Lord, guard us from these true two lies, Lord, that delude so many people. And Lord, we pray that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that, Father, we would bear the fruits in keeping with repentance. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.